Today's scripture reading comes from 1 Corinthians 15, verses 35 through 58. But someone might ask, how will the dead be raised? What kind of bodies will they have? What a foolish question. When you put a seed into the ground, it doesn't grow into a plant unless it dies first. And what you put in the ground is not the plant that will grow, but only a bare seed of wheat or whatever you plant, whatever you are planting. Then God gives it the new body he wants it to have. A different plant grows from each kind of seed. Similarly, there are different kinds of flesh, one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are also bodies in the heavens and bodies on the earth. The glory of the heavenly bodies is different from the glory of the earthly bodies. The sun has one kind of glory, while the moon and stars each have another kind. And even the stars differ from each other in their glory. It is the same way with the resurrection of the dead. Our earthly bodies are planted in the ground when we die, but they will be raised to live forever. Our bodies are buried in brokenness, but they will be raised in glory. They are buried in weakness, but they'll be raised in strength. They are buried as natural human bodies, but they'll be raised as spiritual bodies. For just as there are natural bodies, there are also spiritual bodies. The scripture tells us the first man, Adam, became a living person, but the last Adam, that is Christ, is a life-giving spirit. What comes first is the natural body, then the spiritual body comes later. Adam, the first man, was made from the dust of the earth, while Christ, the second man, came from heaven. Earthly people are like the earthly man, and heavenly people are like the heavenly man. Just as we are now like the earthly man, we will someday be like the heavenly man. What I'm saying, dear brothers and sisters, is that our physical bodies cannot inherit the kingdom of God. These dying bodies cannot inherit what will last forever. But let me reveal to you a wonderful secret. We will not all die, but we will be transformed. It will happen in a moment, in the blink of an eye, when the last trumpet is blown. For when the trumpet sounds, those who have died will be raised to live forever. And we who are living will also be transformed. For our dying bodies must be transformed into bodies that will never die our mortal bodies must be transformed into immortal bodies. Then, when our dying bodies have been transformed into bodies that will never die, this scripture will be fulfilled. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? For sin is the sting that results in death, and the law gives sin its power. But thank God, he gives us victory over sin and death, through our Lord Jesus Christ. So my dear brothers and sisters, be strong and immovable, always working enthusiastically for the Lord, for you know that nothing you do for the Lord is ever useless. The word of God for the people of God. Thank you, Megan and Katie. So this is a Sunday where I am a little bit disappointed 
because this Sunday, this sermon will mark the very end of our deconstruction series. And so we have been walking through 1 Corinthians for a year. We have been talking about deconstructing our faith for a year. Next week, we are going to begin something new, which I'm super excited about, uh, just around the idea of holy love for self. Um, But for the last two weeks leading up to this passage, we've been talking about resurrected bodies. And we have been talking all in 1 Corinthians 15 about the importance of the resurrection. And even some of the things I said may sound really weird next to what Paul just said about how like we will have these spiritual bodies and physical bodies can't inherit the kingdom of God. And so like all of these themes are coming together here and there's so much to unpack. And probably some of you, if you're honest, you were just like, I don't know what Paul's talking about. And you started zoning out until I started talking, right? Because he gets, because he gets, he gets kind of in the weeds about some things. So just as a little bit of a reminder of some things, two weeks ago, I argued that Christianity does not believe in an immortal soul that floats up into heaven. Rather, Christianity believes that all creation and all human beings will resurrect just like Jesus did. Then last week, I argue that Christians are a people who proclaim and live in light of a future resurrection right now in the midst of a world where death still reigns. So, with all of that said, this leads to a natural question that the Corinthians are asking of Paul. You see, they're they're starting to put the pieces together and they're saying, listen, if our bodies are going to resurrect, if they're going to be physically resurrected, But if we also still live in a world of death and we're not yet resurrected, then that also means that between now and when we're resurrected, we're probably going to die. And people we know are going to die. And so what does all of that mean to us? What does that mean for our bodies? How can bodies that have been passed on for so long that they have turned into dust, how can they be resurrected? They're dust. Jesus' body was only three days old. So he just got up and everything was there. This is, I think, a pretty rational question, despite the fact that Paul calls them foolish for asking it. Paul gets weird sometimes. He was probably just irritated. He wrote that. He wrote 1 Corinthians 15 in the morning. He hadn't had his coffee yet. Okay. But he does acknowledge their question, which is, if our bodies are going to resurrect and we still live in a world of death and we're likely going to die before Jesus' return, what does that mean for our bodies? How can our bodies have turned to dust be resurrected? In other words, how will the dead be raised and what kind of body will they have? And despite the fact that Paul gives us an answer here. He does describe it. This question of the resurrection of our bodies and what all of that means for us has led to wild speculation in 2,000 years of Christianity. Wild speculations and all kinds of assumptions. For example... I was reading not too long ago about in the 18th century in England, the courts would sentence murderers to die in something called a gibbet. An open-air cage 
where beasts could fly in and consume a living body until the person died very slowly and very painfully. And the person would be denied a, a Christian burial. Now you say, what in the world? How did we get to a gibbet? Here's how. The reason for this was they believed that the body would be so mutilated that it would not be fit for Christian resurrection on Judgment Day. So the idea was that you have performed such a heinous crime that we have decided as humans you are not fit for resurrection, therefore we will so mutilate your body that it won't be able to resurrect. The church, too, got into matters like this related to death, and they would, uh, w- the church would sometimes try to protect people's bodies for Resurrection Day. So, for example, for a really long time, the church forbade the dis- dissection of human bodies in autopsies because they felt like it too mutilated the body for Resurrection Day. Or, if I can give a brighter Example, we have over 150 stories from the 4th century and 3rd century of Christian saints being martyred for their faith. And these stories, there's a, of this subset of 150 stories, there's a group of them where someone is beheaded because their enemy believes that beheading them and separating the body from the head would inhibit the head from being resurrected on Judgment Day. And so there's a story particularly of a fellow named St. Dennis who uh, is martyred for his faith, his head is lopped off, and his body resurrects in the moment, picks up his head, carries it to the graveyard with him. All along, by the way, the severed head is quoting a psalm because what else would it be doing? And the idea was it was believed that the separation of the head from the body would only be able to resurrect the body and not the head. And so Dennis was like, nope, my head's going with me. We have over 150 of those psalms because, right, because bodies that Bodies can resurrect only partially, right? So this is like all these speculations, these weird kind of funny stories. And even today, we have to admit, like we've got a little bit of weirdness around this. There are Christians, for example, who don't believe that you should be cremated. Right? Because Christian burial is one where a body comes up out of a casket and... And so this cremation is, is not a Christian thing. We shouldn't do it. And, and symbolically, I appreciate that, right? Like, I don't personally want to be cremated. So like this, you know, symbolically, I appreciate the idea of the body coming up out of the grave. And all of that makes sense symbolically, but it doesn't make sense theologically once you like start asking just even surface level questions. Like, what about somebody who died in a house fire? Right? Are they not going to be able to resurrect? No. Right? So like, The symbolism is valuable, but the point is like there's all this sort of like speculation about the nature of the body and how this body and its frailties relates to the resurrected body. And so Paul is going to take this on. Clearly, there's been a lot of speculation. And on the one hand, it's a little bit annoying because Paul seems to speak clearly here, but then it's also not annoying because he's not that clear here. 
right? Um, and so Paul's answer is a bit confusing. He seems clear at some points, and then he seems to, like, contradict himself. And so the, one of the difficulties, so I just want to, like, lay this out for you, okay? One of the difficulties with this text is that in order to fully appreciate the extent of this discussion and Paul's confusing language, you actually have to know Greek, because Paul begins to distinguish between a soma body and a sarx body and a CK and a pneuma. And like he makes these like subtle Greek distinctions that don't really come across all that clear in the English. And all they really do is end up confusing us more. I am not going to go into that level of a discussion, though I do want you to know I had to do that to try to make sense of this passage. So I'm going to give you the bird's eye view of what I think is happening here and just admit on judgment day when I'm resurrected, I could be wrong, okay? This is what I think is happening here. The main thing to keep in mind about the resurrected body it is that it is the same body and a different body. Paul really strains to make sense of this for us in all of these different analogies and metaphors that he uses. For example, I think the one that is most helpful is the example that he uses of a seed. He says that the body, that the human body is a seed that transforms, that changes, that the human body is buried at the moment of death, it is buried underground like a seed. It becomes one with the dirt because it was made out of dirt. But that seed eventually transforms, it changes, it becomes something of a fruit that will later be able to be harvested. But here's the thing, when you look at a seed and you look at what the seed becomes, they're not even recognizably the same thing. If you didn't know how this works, because of, you know, like, second grade, like, planting seeds in the plastic bags and, like, getting to see it happen. Like, if you didn't know, you'd be like, these are not the same thing. But we do know that they are the same thing. And Paul uses this metaphor of the seed. If it were a Venn diagram, the earthly body, I thought I had a Venn diagram, apparently I don't. If it were a Venn diagram, the earthly body and the resurrected body would have overlap and they would have differences. To use a more tangible bodily metaphor, one biblical scholar says the human body can pass through different forms throughout its life. The baby, the infant, the teenager, the middle-aged person, the fragile elderly person can be all the self-same person. But their vehicle of expression, identity, and communication may differ radically at the same time. The same the self is the same self even if it has undergone changes of appearance and even changes of character. Or we even know enough about like how cells change and die over time that by the time you're like so many years old, like your cells are almost completely different than the cells you were born with. But your body's the same. But it's not the same. Paul says the differences between the earthly body and the resurrected body are rooted in what animates them. That is, what gives them life. 
Our bodies are right now enlivened by the earth and the earthly elements like oxygen. Our resurrection bodies will be enlivened by the Holy Spirit. This is what Paul refers to as a spiritual body. So this gets a little bit confusing because it's how Paul uses language very subtly in the Greek that doesn't come across all that well in English. But he talks about how like these, we're going to have these spiritual bodies. What he's not saying there is that we're going to have just like ghost-like bodies. What he's saying there is that spiritual bodies are bodies that are animated or given life by the Holy Spirit. They're spiritual in that way. This is why he refers to the resurrection body as a spiritual body. For Paul, uh, for Paul, our earthly bodies are subject to decay and corruption, but our resurrection bodies are subject to the incorruptible Holy Spirit. Now, some of you feel this very deeply already when we start talking about bodies that aren't working quite right. You get to 40 years old. Greg, not looking at you, I'm just saying your name. And you get that first colonoscopy, right? And you're like... Life is about to turn south real fast. And all of a sudden, you're going to the doctor yearly for a physical when before you never even thought about going to the doctor for the physical. All of a sudden, a doctor is talking to you about how you're supposed to eat better, Tom, because you don't have a body that just burns calories while it sleeps anymore. You go into the doctor and you got a Google Doc that just has a list of ailments you want to talk to him about. My feet hurt and my wrists hurt and my knees don't bend right. And I can't ever remember where I left my flipping keys. Our resurrected bodies will never forget where they left their keys. And they won't need colonoscopies. Paul says that our earthly bodies are subject to humiliation. I would call it colonoscopy humiliation. But our resurrected bodies will be made glorious by the Holy Spirit. He says that our earthly bodies have spiritual weaknesses. That is, they struggle to obey and to love and to surrender to the love of God because we carry death and sin within our bodies. But he says our resurrection bodies, which are animated by the Holy Spirit, will delight in serving and obeying God because they are not limited by human sin. But they're not different bodies. They're transformed bodies. Bodies not subject to the same weaknesses as our earthly bodies. To illustrate this point, let me draw a comparison between two stories that you may know from the Bible. You have, of course, the resurrection of Jesus. But before that, in John 11, do you remember Jesus resurrects a guy named Lazarus? Let me compare those two in order to illustrate this point. Lazarus wasn't resurrected in the same way that Jesus was. How do we know? Because Lazarus' body, yes, was called back from death temporarily. He was truly dead, and Jesus resuscitated him. But he was resuscitated in the exact same body without any differences 
such that Lazarus eventually died again. Lazarus was resurrected, but he didn't receive at that time a resurrection body that was animated by the Holy Spirit. When we compare that to Jesus, however, Jesus is given a resurrection body that is the same and different. It was the same body he died with. How do we know that? Because at some point he says to Thomas, put your hand in my scars. Somehow the scars of the crucifixion are still on his resurrected body, showing that there is a continuity or a sameness between his resurrected body and the current body that, or, and, and the body he had before. However, even in the story of Jesus resurrected, we see that Jesus' body is transformed. For example, in one gospel account, the resurrected Jesus walks through a wall. In another gospel account, his disciples don't even recognize him when they see him. You remember Mary and the women at the tomb? They thought he was the gardener. Listen, I'm just telling you, three days is not long enough for them to forget what Jesus looks like. But something about his body is different enough now that they think he's the gardener. Also, John tells us that Jesus' resurrected body is animated by the Holy Spirit such that when he breathes on his disciples, they themselves receive the Holy Spirit. So there is, in Jesus' resurrected body, there is sameness and there is difference. Now, why does all of this matter? Why are we talking about it? One, because the resurrected body is the same as the earthly body. What we do with our bodies now matters. And what we do with other people's bodies matters. This has been, if I'm just going to summarize this entire walk through 1 Corinthians, this has been the point he's been getting at the whole time. Because our, because our bodies now will be resurrected then, that means what we do with our bodies matters. How we think about, how we interact with our bodies, what we do with our bodies and what we do with other people's bodies matters. How, this is why Paul goes into all this... Paul is not trying to teach us how to be moral people. As if morality as an, is an end in itself. Paul is trying to get us to be people of the resurrection whose morals reflect the fact that we will resurrect. Do you see the distinction? Such that if the resurrection doesn't happen, Paul says, well, let's just go home. Like none of this morality makes sense. Christian morality is not obvious morality that everybody should just look at and be like, yeah, let's get on board with that. It's one of the reasons why it's absolutely absurd to me when Christians try to enforce our morality on a secular state. They don't see the obvious logic of Christian morality because they don't accept the resurrection. 
For Christians, it's rooted in the resurrection story. All our morality flows out of this. This is why Paul says, because of the resurrection, men and women are to treat each other a certain way. Because of the resurrection, the rich are supposed to treat the poor a certain way. Because of the resurrection, the educated are supposed to treat the uneducated a certain way. Because of the resurrection, this has implications for whether we can eat at pagan shrines or eat food sacrificed to idols. He's been talking about it through the entire work book. All of it is rooted in this discussion of the resurrection. But also, because our bodies are the same, what we do in this life with our bodies matters. But also, because our bodies are different, our bodies will not be subject to the same frailties. Now listen, I don't know everything that this entails. I don't know. Jesus still has scars, but they're not open wounds that hurts when someone puts their finger in there. But they're still scars, and they're there, and, and the scar, the frailty becomes a sample of glory. So what it means for our bodies not to be subject to the, to the frailties that we experience now, I don't know what that entirely means, though it's an implication the Bible just draws out over and over. I at least like to believe I won't forget my keys. But I think it's much bigger than that. I think the point is really that there is a triumph over sin and death and all the implications of that. Finally, because our resurrected bodies will be animated by the Holy Spirit or given life by the Holy Spirit, and because the Holy Spirit is already given to us in baptism, the Holy Spirit is the element that gives us eternal life now. See, this, this, is, this is what Paul is saying in all the confusing parts about seeds and, and bodies and, and uh, planets and suns and moons and stars. See, Paul sees the earthly body as animated or given life by earthly things. And the resurrection body is animated or given life by the Holy Spirit kinds of things. But in our baptism, we are given the Holy Spirit we are brought into the body of Christ, animated and given life by the things that belong to the elements of the body of Christ. We don't have to then be a people who merely wait for the resurrection in order to begin experiencing the fullness of God right now in these bodies. We experience the Spirit now when we gather together as the body of Christ and claim this as our element that gives us meaning and purpose and life and hope and future. We experience the Spirit now when we pray for each other, when we gather together, when we do things like learn to love, live in holy love for God and learn to live in holy love for neighbor and learn to live in holy love for self. We experience the Spirit when we pray for each other. 
We experience the Spirit when we receive communion. The Methodist Church believes that the Holy Spirit is uniquely present. The Spirit is always present to us, but the Spirit is uniquely present in the moment where communion is received. When we acknowledge that the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus is the story of our own healing and our own frailty and our own eventual glory because of his resurrection and ours. The broken body of Jesus is, and the resurrected body of Jesus is, the natural element that animates our lives even now. I don't know about you, but I have had a ton of fun going through 1 Corinthians. It's been really fun. It, I get to the end of series sometimes, I'm like, glad that's over. But not this one. Um, I really, I mean, 1 Corinthians is so weird. It's just so weird. So many weird things happening. Head coverings and pagan shrines. And, um, but thank you. Um, I know that particularly post-pandemic, like, that there are just a ton of people that decided not to return to church. And on some level, I get it. You get out of the habit of it, but you all have chosen to be here. And most of you, you've been here most of the time. And I'm just so grateful for that, for you saying that what we represent here as a people who are a body of Christ living the resurrection life now, that this matters. So thank you.